The poet Samuel Stone captures something of the weariness of life when he wrote these lines, Weary of earth and laden with my sin, I look at heaven and long to enter in, but there no evil thing may find a home, and yet I hear a voice that bids me come. Stone recognizes what Augustine saw clearly centuries before him, that the antidote to human weariness rests on what God has done, and particularly on the rest that God gives. In fact, it was Augustine who said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. The writer of Hebrews focuses on this motif of rest. Here in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 1 to 11. In the passage before, he warns the recipients of this letter of the danger from apostasy, from turning away irrevocably from God. And he provides them with a positive example of faithfulness in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses because he is the son over his own house, whereas Moses is a servant in the house of the Lord. So he, in seeking to warn them against apostasy, points them to Jesus and his faithfulness. In chapter 3, 1 to 6. In chapter 3, 7 to 19, he switched tactics and he presents a negative example that they must avoid. He's pointed them to Jesus and the faithful example of Jesus, but then he turns and he points them to a negative example, the example of Israel in the wilderness, how they failed to obey God, did not enter the land. And he says, I want you to look at Israel and look at their unfaithfulness and do not imitate them. Because the people to whom he writes were in danger of backsliding and irrevocably turning away from the Lord. But in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, he brings a message of assurance, an encouragement to them, in order that they would persevere in the Christian life. And he reminds them of God's provision of rest. Central to the argument is chapter 4, verse 9 where he says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. I want us to look today at this theme, this motif of rest. First then, the rest that is promised to God's people is God's own rest. And that rest is available from the completion of creation. That's the first argument that you're going to see reiterated in verses 1 to 8 of this passage. That the rest promised to God's people is God's own rest, and that rest is available from the completion of creation. So he begins in verse 1, Therefore, since the promise remains of entering into his rest, 
Let us fear, lest any one of you seem to have come short of it. He cautions them to be on their guard, lest they fall short of this rest. And he explains that the wilderness generation received the promise, the good news of rest. And they fell short of this rest in verse 2. And the reason that they fell short of rest, he says, it is because the word that they received was not mingled or joined to faith. In other words, when they heard the good news of rest, when they heard the gospel of rest, they did not receive it with faith. And as a result of their unbelief, they stumbled and fell in the wilderness. In verse 2, he says, For indeed the gospel, the good news, was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now in verse 3, he tells them that they have believed. That is the good news, the promise of rest. And that they have entered into rest. He says, for we who have believed do enter into rest. So in a sense, he says that these to whom he writes have entered into rest. And in this instance, he's talking about the rest which salvation brings. And so you can substitute rest, at least in verse 2, for salvation. The old generation in the wilderness did not receive salvation. They did not enter into rest because they did not receive God's promise with faith. But the writer goes on to distinguish the rest as an available rest. You notice he says, therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest, this rest is available. And throughout this passage he will press the availability of rest. But he goes on further in part B of verse 3 to indicate that the rest that is available is God's own rest. And so he quotes from Psalm 95 and verse 11 here in verse 3. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. The writer is not merely reminding us that Israel did not enter into rest, but rather the focus is on my rest. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. You see, there is a rest that God provides, and the rest that he gives is his own rest. The, the wilderness generation did not enter into the land of Canaan, which was a sort of rest, but even greater than that, they did not enter into God's rest. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so you see in part B, he begins to define this rest as a rest that is available since the work of creation was completed. In verse 4, he continues to explain the character of this rest. Not only is this rest entered into by faith, not only is this rest available, and not only is this rest God's rest, but this rest, he says, is available since the creation. And so he quotes in verse 4. He says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
So the rest that he's speaking is about is God's rest. And, and there he's citing Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. When God had finished making or creating the world, a world created ex nihilo, where God did not use existing material to create the world, but he spoke the world into being. When God had finished this, this work of creation and pronounced it very good, God rested on the seventh day. Now, we need to know that when the Bible says that God rested, it was not the rest from exhaustion. It is not that God had been working for six days and was now tired. And the reason it is not the rest of exhaustion is because God cannot tire. God is not man. He does not have flesh and blood. So it is the rest of work completed. Nor are we to understand the rest of God, that God rested on the seventh day, as the rest of inactivity. For we know that God continues to work. He works in providence, in caring for the creation, in controlling and in guiding creation. We know that God continues to work in salvation, in saving his people in sanctifying them and protecting them from evil and leading them on to glory. So this rest refers to the cessation of God's activity, at least creative activity, that occurred on the seventh day. And the writer confirms this by pointing that the rest that is available is God's rest, a rest which he entered into upon the completion of creation. In verse 4, he makes the same point that this is God's rest. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Again, he quotes Psalm 95 in verse 5, and again in this place they shall not enter into my rest. So the rest that is available is God's rest. Israel did not enter it, but that rest is still available. So the pastor is clarifying, and he will do so in verses 6 and 7, that God's rest... The rest that he entered into after creation, the rest that Israel forfeited, still stands despite the disobedience of the wilderness generation. Verse 6 and 7 is going to tell you that when God promised rest, that rest continues even though Israel refused to take God up on his promise. So in verses 6 and 7, he wants us to know that the disobedience of Israel did not cause God to remove the promise of rest. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, that is, God's rest, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Well, what is the point he's making? He's simply telling us how, how do we go about knowing that the rest that God has promised, the rest which is available, the rest, rest which is his own rest, how do we know that that rest is still available? Because God has spoken in the psalmist David and said, Today, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. In other words, do not be like Israel. Enter into rest. If, if David came after the wilderness generation, and God is still saying to David's generation today, 
enter into this rest, then rest must continue. It means that Israel's disobedience did not cause God to revoke the rest which he promised. And it also means that the generation to which the writer of Hebrews speaks still hears the voice of David saying today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. So he makes it clear in verses 6 and 7 that this rest, which is God's rest, which is available, it stands despite the disobedience of the wilderness generation. Israel may have failed to enter, but God still cries through David today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The writer in verse 8 draws a conclusion, an observation from the availability of rest, especially pronounced by David. And so he says in verse 8, for if Joshua, and let us pause to note that the name Joshua, or the Greek Yeshua, is the same name Jesus. So Yeshua, which is Greek, in English Jesus, is the same as the Old Testament name Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus means the same thing. But here in verse 8, he points us to Joshua. Because it is Joshua and Caleb, but Joshua particularly, who led Israel into the land. Now what he says then in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. That is, David would not, not have said today. And what is he saying? He's saying that the rest that God gives, the rest which is God's own rest, was not secured or exhausted by Joshua's rest. That he's not denying that Joshua gave Israel rest because he gave them the rest of security in the land. He gave them the rest, the freedom from wandering in the wilderness. He gave them the rest of security and he gave them the rest of rootedness that they were able to live in the land. They were given rest from their enemies. But he's saying that the rest that Joshua gave is a harbinger. It is a picture of a greater rest that God will give to his people. Joshua did not fulfill the promise of rest because while he gave them physical rest, there was a greater spiritual and eschatological rest that is yet to come. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. What have we seen in these eight verses? One, that the rest that God promised to Israel in the wilderness is still available. That rest is God's own rest. And that Joshua, while he gave them temporary rest, did not fulfill the rest that God has promised. So the rest promised to God's children, to God's people, is God's own rest, and it's available since creation. But I want us to draw another lesson from the passage. Not only is God's rest then available from the creation, but the rest that God has reserved for his people is the eternal Sabbath rest that they will enjoy at the end of the age. And then we come to verse 9, which I think is at the center of the paragraph before us. You see, the promised rest is not only God's rest. 
and it's not only an available rest, but verse 9 begins to define precisely the nature of the rest that God promised to Israel and God now promised to those who persevere in faith. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the book of Hebrews. I want you to note that verse 9 contains a significant change in the use of the term rest and the vocabulary of rest in the passage. Throughout the passage, that is throughout chapter 4 of Hebrews 1 to 11, the writer consistently uses the noun, kataposis, kataposis for rest. It occurs approximately 10 times where he uses rest and kataposis. And kataposis means a resting place. So, you, you, so in verse 1, therefore since a promise remains of entering into his rest, kataposis, referring to a, re- a resting place. For the writer then, this noun, kataposis, refers to rest as a place. You see, for ancient Israel, the rest that God promised them involved a physical and observable rest. A rest in the land of Israel or a land of Canaan. But as you trace the theme of rest, Throughout the scriptures, you see that rest takes on a spiritual connotation. And so when the writer of Hebrews speaks of rest largely as a place, he will use other descriptive terms for rest in Hebrews. He will describe rest as entering into the heavenly sanctuary. In chapter 10, 19, and 20, it says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest, it's talking about heaven, by the blood of Christ. He will speak particularly in chapter 11, in other terms, but still describing this rest, rest as a place. He says that one day believers will be admitted into the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, in chapter 11, verse 10. He speaks of a better country, a heavenly country, the city God has prepared for them. And he calls it, in chapter 12, Mount Zion, the city of the living God on the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, rest is seen in other ways as heaven itself. And that is how we are to see the spiritual aspect of rest. It is not only Canaan, but the rest that God promises is heaven. But there is more to be said in verse 9 regarding this rest. Because for the writer, rest is not merely a place, but rest is a state. And that is what the vocabulary of verse 9 indicates. There remains, therefore, a rest. For the people of God. The writer in verse 9 uses the term for rest, which is sabbatismus. Sabbatismus occurs only here in all of Scripture. He's never used it before and will never use it again. But he says, There remains, therefore, 
a sabbatismus for the people of God. He changes language, moves away from kataposis, which refers to a place, a resting place. And he says, there remains, therefore, a sabbatismus for the people of God. It's important that you understand the language. You see, this term, sabbatismus, harks back to Genesis chapter 2 and the word sabbat. God rested on the seventh day. And it says in Genesis 2, God rested on the seventh day. Sabbat. Rest, the verb is sabbat, from which we get sabbath, the noun. And so when he talks about there remains therefore a rest, a sabbatismus, he's invoking the idea of the sabbath. And so you and I may be able then to translate this. There remains therefore a sabbath for the people of God. Now what does it mean? Why does he say there remains therefore a sabbath for the people of God? Why does he invoke the Old Testament idea of the sabbath? It is important to recognize that the sabbath as described in the Old Testament uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8 for instance and as practiced in Israel did not merely refer to a cessation of activities. Yes, the Sabbath in Exodus 20 meant that Israel could not do their work as usual. They couldn't go plow their fields and take their horses and their cattle through the farms and use them to plow. They, they could not dig and plant and so on. All that the regular activity of the week ceased on the Sabbath. But what must be appreciated, that the Sabbath was more than cessation of activity or cessation of normal work. The Sabbath referred to a day of joyful celebration. It was on the Sabbath that the children of God came together to praise and to worship God who had delivered them from Egypt. And when he says there, there remains therefore a sabbatismus, he's speaking about a state of festive joy and worship. He's saying that there is a sabbath yet to come, a rest that is yet to come, and this rest is a rest of joy. You see, it is one thing to say that there is a rest to come, it is God's rest. But when you probe the idea of the rest to come and you begin to ask, what is that rest like? Here in verse 9, the writer says, it is the sabbatismus of the people of God. It is a festive rest, a rest of joy, a rest of worship that believers will enter into when the Lord comes. Now I know that not everyone takes this, this, this view of verse 9. There's a writer who was penned an article, a scholarly article on this verse 9. And he says that the term sabbatismus, which comes from Sabbath, if one were to study the term Sabbath in the Old Testament and New Testament, he would say you must conclude that Sabbath refers to the weekly Sabbath. And therefore, when the writer says there remains a rest, a sabbatismus for the people of God, it refers to a weekly Sabbath. 
I, I, I couldn't under, I, I still am not able to understand what that means. How that how he could read this verse as referring to the weekly Sabbath. Because if that were the case, if there remained a weekly Sabbath, then they would have entered it because it was right there, right before them. Every week they would have the weekly Sabbath to enter into. But I think what is even more damning regarding that position, it is precisely because the writer tells them in verse 4, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. If, if the Sabbath rest he's speaking of was the weekly Sabbath, why would they need to fear falling short and not entering to that rest? The only reason he can say this, it is because the Sabbath to which he speaks, of which he speaks, refers to the age to come. That there is going to be a rest at the end of the age, God's rest, but it's a rest of festive joy and worship. Believers have entered into rest in that they have been saved, but we have not entered into eschatological rest. In fact, therefore, the rest of God must be seen as now and also future. There are two components to the rest of God. There is the now and the not yet. We have received rest, but we will receive a greater rest. A rest defined as the sabbatismus, that rest of celebration, and the worship of God, that we who are God's priestly people will enter into this rest that will surpass any physical rest that the children of Israel had in Canaan. It will be a rest then of adoration and praise, a rest of unbroken fellowship with God and unceasing praise of God. Now verse 10 explains why there is future rest. And why this rest of festivity and joy is possible. He says in verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his work as God did from his. What the writer is doing is that he's revealing that the future rest depends upon God's own rest as a pattern. Whoever enters God's Sabbath rest experiences the completion of his work and by implication, the joy and satisfaction that comes from work completed. I, I just want to point out before I move on, that when we, when we hear that God entered into rest, it should not just be simply that God ceased to create, but that God exists always, and yes, even after creation, in a state of complete bliss and rest, a complete joy and blessedness. After all, he's called the blessed God. Two points made then by the writer in these nine verses. The rest promised to God's people is God's own rest which is available since creation. But the rest reserved for God's people is the Sabbath rest, a rest of festive joy and worship. In verse 11, the writer makes a third point regarding rest. And he teaches us that the rest that awaits God's people requires zeal and perseverance in order to attain it. In fact, in verse 11, we have come full circle from verse 1. Because if you notice in verse 1, there is an exhortation. Therefore, 
Since a promise remains of entering into his rest, let us fear that any of you seem to have come short of it. Be careful you do not miss this coming rest, he says in verse 1. Now in verse 11, we have the second exhortation in the passage. Let us therefore be diligent. First he says, let us fear. Let's be careful. Let's act judiciously. Let's we forfeit the rest which is promised by God. Now he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He says it very clearly then that the rest that awaits the people of God requires diligence and perseverance in order to enter it. This term, diligence, is a term which means to be eager, to be zealous, to take great pain. So what he's saying in verse 11 is that these believers and all of us must take great pains to enter into God's rest. That will be at the end of the age. That we ought to be careful that we do not follow the same example of disobedience seen in Israel. How then must they act diligently so that they will enter into that God's rest at the end of the age. I think that if you go back to verse 3 of the passage, you will see that believers enter into rest by faith. I think that's clear. For we who have believed do enter that rest. It is by believing that we enter into rest. And the way we continue in God and in the rest which he has given is by faith. It is by perseverance in faith. In fact, this is the very opposite of what Israel did. If you go back to verse 18 and 19, God swore in chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, God swore that they would not enter into his rest. Why? So we see in verse 19, they could not enter in because of unbelief. So the only way we can be diligent in this Christian life, so we enter into the rest to come, is by doing the opposite of what Israel did. Israel, they did not trust God. We, however, must learn from the examples of our forefathers. You know, you can learn, you, you can learn a lot of lessons, you know, by positively good role models. You can learn from good role models, but you can also learn from bad examples. You know, some people tell me, I, I don't want to go to church because there are hypocrites there. And I, and I say to them, you know, that's, that shouldn't stop you. What you should do is that you should come and be a genuine Christian so the hypocrites can see and be saved. You can learn from bad examples. And Israel's example was one of unbelief. They did not persevere in belief, in faith in God. And so we who are to be diligent to enter in, lest we fall along like Israel did, must persevere in faith, in trusting in the promises of God. But we must also persevere in a second way. We must persevere in obedience. For verse 11 tells us that Israel not only failed to enter in because of unbelief, they failed to enter in because of disobedience. Look at verse 11 again. Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. As anyone falls according to the same example of disobedience. These two things unbelief and disobedience occurred at Kadesh Barnea. Here they had come out of the land of Egypt, spent a year at Mount Sinai, and within a week or so they had come to Kadesh Barnea. In a year they would have gone into the land. When they were told they were spies in the land, 
they did not trust God, so they would not enter. But the fact that they refused to enter the land was disobedience. It was unbelief because they did not believe the promise that God was going to give them the land, and by refusing to enter, they disobeyed. To act diligently so that we enter rest, the rest at the end of the age, we must practice continual faith and trust in God and also obedience to the word of God as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. So let's summarize then these 11 verses. The paragraph contains the assurance of rest. It defines rest as God's own rest available to his people from the completion of creation. It shows that this rest is a greater rest than that which Joshua gave to Israel. But that this rest is the heavenly rest and the sabbatismus of God, the festive celebration and the priestly worship of God. From ancient times, rest has proven quite elusive for humanity. Great saints in the past, like David, in Psalm 55 and verse 6, the psalmist David says, Oh, that I might have wings like a dove, that I might fly away and be at rest. And centuries before him, Job says that I am in anguish and in turmoil and I have no rest. Job, in chapter 14 of that book, says to the Lord, Turn away from me, look away from me, that I might have rest. There's always a desire within us for rest. That even today we are seeking rest. We want rest from the tedium of life. You know, life in many regards is quite boring. You know, get up in the morning, you do the same thing. You make breakfast for the children. You go to work and you've got to think about what you're going to make for dinner. And you come home and you do that, and you, you do that for 60, 70, 80 years. Thinking about what to make for lunch and what to make for dinner. And who's going to do the groceries and who's going to clean the house. There's a lot of things in marriage and life that is quite boring. We want rest from the tedium of it all. We desire rest from the weight of expectation that our family has placed on us, our parents place on us, our spouses place on us. We want rest from the obligations that we must satisfy. But there is in us a great and deep and lasting longing for rest, for rest from sin. Because sin brings with it a weight, a weight of guilt and shame. It brings with it the weight of the reality of a punishment to come. We desire rest. And the scriptures remind us that the rest that we need is available. And it is available in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. That we have in Christ a greater Joshua. We have in Christ one who gives us not only physical rest but spiritual rest. It is he who in Matthew chapter 11 and 28 who says, Come unto me, all of you who are labored and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle of heart. There is a rest from our sins. We can have our consciences washed free. We can have our sins totally and completely removed. There is rest in Jesus. But the only way that you and I can find this rest is by coming to him in faith. You see, if you are to come to Christ, there must be a movement. The people of the first century were under the weight of the scribal interpretation of the law. They were carrying the burden of the law that they could not satisfy. And Jesus comes along and says, come to me. The very call to come means that there must be a movement from a former position to a new position. But you are not being called to move from one theory to a new theory. You are being called to move to Christ. Because rest is not found in a theory. It is found in a person. Jesus is the giver of rest. He takes our burdens. And how does he give us rest? It is because he himself was crucified. It is because he died on the cross for our sins. You see, the rest that he gives us is the fruit of his work on the cross. In 1933, Gaharus von Rad, the Old Testament scholar, identified what he viewed as a lacuna, a gap in the scholarly research in theology. He argued that theology covered a vast number of subjects. But the scholars in his day were not concerned to study the theme of rest. And he said that this is a great oversight. You and I need to know that when we think of the cross and think of the work of Jesus, we must not forget that one of the things that Jesus accomplished for us is rest. A relief, a deliverance from the weight of our sins. But we can now live joyfully and happy knowing that our sins are completely washed away in Jesus. There is rest in him. Come to me, he says. That rest must be received by faith. And it must be received today. There's always this today if you hear his voice. Today, not tomorrow, not the next day or the next year, but today. Come by faith and receive rest. Are you burdened with sin? Are you burdened by the problems of life? I want you to know that while Jesus will not take you away from the struggles of life, he will give you joy in the midst of the struggles of life. You must come to him by faith and find in him true rest. But I want you to know, secondly, that while rest, that is, the rest of salvation is found in Jesus, that ultimate rest is yet future. The writer says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And you and I need to know that as we live our lives, that there is a great rest coming. A sabbatismus. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 66 saw this rest. He says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that from one moon to the next moon, and from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath, 
all will come and worship the Lord. There's a rest coming. There's a rest coming. I read in the book of Revelation and chapter 14 that those who die outside of Christ, that those who know him not, will not enter into rest. Because in Revelation 14, John says he has a vision. And there he saw the wicked, those who did not serve God. He said that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. Who worship the beast and his image and bear his mark. Listen, my friends. There is a great day of rest coming, but you will not be a part of that rest unless you are in Christ. What awaits you is eternal torment. I think it is patently grievous that you should suffer in this life and then suffer forever in the next one. I think it's vastly, vastly greater to suffer now and spend eternity in the Lord, with the Lord. Why suffer here and suffer over there? The smoke of their torment arises and rises forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. But in that same chapter 14, John says, I heard a voice saying to me, Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors and their works follow them. You see the contrast. The unbeliever are suffering without rest for eternity, but those who die in the Lord, they are blessed because they've entered into rest. And you want to know what that rest looks like in chapter 21 of Revelation. John saw the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, and there will be no more death. And there will be no more sorrow or crying or pain. For the former things, he says, are passed away. You and I are going to a day of rest where there will be no suffering. I know that in this world that you bear deep pains. I know that you have wounds, some of you that you will not even mention to those who are closest to you. I know you feel betrayed and you feel anguished by the sufferings that you endure. I know that many of you carry massive burdens and we pass through a veil of tears in this world. But I want you to know that there is a rest to come when you shall be delivered from everything that disquiets, everything that causes anguish. That one day God will wipe away every tear from your eye. But I, I want you to know that the rest that is coming is not merely negative. It is not merely that you are free from pain. But the rest which is coming is to enter into the rest of God, which is that sabbatismus, a rest of celebration. You see, if heaven was simply the lack of suffering, it would be fantastic. But that's not what heaven is. The rest which is coming is to enter into the joy of the Lord. 
is to be inundated with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There is a Sabbath coming. There is a day of rest when we shall stand before our King and we shall rejoice before Him. When we shall cast our crowns before Him and we shall say, You are worthy. And we will go from one new moon to another new moon, one Sabbath to another Sabbath, praising Him. I want you to hold on a bit longer. I want you to stand your ground a little bit longer. I want you to press on diligently a little bit longer because there is a great rest coming. When you have finished your work, when you have done your all, our God will come and say, come now, enter into my rest and enjoy my presence forever and ever. May you aspire to that rest and live your life not seeking rest that the world offers you, but the rest that God alone gives, that eschatological rest, that saving rest in Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen.